Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 4 Sink or Swim. The first division was just a step away. One big step, admittedly, but Watford's more ambitious followers hoped that with a millionaire chairman and a dash of bravery in the transfer market, they might leapfrog the second division in one fluid movement. Little more than tumbleweed blew down Occupation Road during the summer of 1979. There were no famous faces turning up at Watford to propel an instant push for the top flight. Just one new arrival a journeyman striker from the lower divisions, Graham Taylor's old friend from Lincoln, John Ward. There were grumbles that this was typical of Watford, clamber up to the second division and then relinquish their grip because of an inability to speculate in order to accumulate. This was history, repeating itself, and, if they weren't careful, they'd be back where they started. Elton addressed this criticism writing directly to the supporters in the programme at the start of the season. The club's ambitions were not dimmed, but Taylor was playing a longer game. He had his sights fixed on reaching the top when the club was ready to make the step. He was not going to be reckless. He was wary of attracting the sort of players who wanted to hitch their wagon to a club on the rise. He wanted to keep the team hungry. As soon as promotion had been achieved, Taylor resolved to give the players who had got the club to the second division a chance to show they could live with it. Before spending any money, he wanted to see who would sink and who could swim. Elton's enthusiasm and Taylor's pragmatism dovetailed perfectly. The chairman did want to get on with things, but he recognised the danger of the team outgrowing the club. Taylor impressed on him the need to develop steadily and organically if they were to reach the first division and stay there long enough to make an impact. The new season's fixture list was packed with glamour and excitement. Chelsea, Newcastle United, West Ham, Sunderland. Making trips to places such as Stamford Bridge, St James's Park, Upton Park and Roker Park as equals was something to be relished. But the lack of activity in the transfer market did not match the supporters' anticipation. Would a team that still largely resembled the one that had powered up out of the fourth division just two seasons earlier be good enough for the step up? The new arrival, Ward, cost just £15,000 and had never even played in the second division. Taylor pointed out that the club had been forced to spend £250,000 to ensure the stadium met the second division's safety regulations, but people do not pop along on a Saturday afternoon to admire the paintwork or the rigidity of the crush barriers. They come to watch the team. Luther Blissett and Ross Jenkins had just scored 50 goals between them in a season and many supporters failed to see why Watford needed another centre-forward, much less one who had no experience at this level. But Taylor was signing the man as much as he was recruiting the player and, like Steve Harrison before him, John Ward would turn out to be one of the key figures of the decade. Ward had watched with a mixture of sadness and simmering anger as everything Taylor had done at Sensel Bank was either dismantled or left to go to ruin after his friend had left. The Lincoln manager who followed Graham even told the groundsman to take the pencils and paper from Graham's office and chuck them on the bonfire, he says. The groundsman couldn't bring himself to do it, so he took them home. 
As Taylor had taken Sam Ellis, and then Dennis Booth with him from Lincoln to Watford, Ward had hoped he might be next, but the call never came. A couple of years on, and Ward thought the chance to play at a higher level and be reunited with Taylor had passed him by. In June 1979 his contract was up, and he hoped for a two-year deal that would earn him a testimonial season. Lincoln offered him only one year. Taylor and Ward had kept in regular touch, and Ward happened to mention that Chester City had made a bid and he was about to sign. "'What's the fee?' Taylor asked. "'Maybe we can match it. How about it?' Ward knew he was unlikely to oust Blissett or Jenkins, but he was eager to experience something new and particularly keen to work with Taylor again. "'I was a good player for a manager, because I was easy to leave out. He could drop me and I wouldn't complain. I'd give my best whether it was for the reserves or the first team. I was happy to be named as sub or just be part of the first-team squad for away games. If I was asked to carry the skip containing all the kit to the coach, I'd do that. I thought of myself as a team player, and the way I saw it, there were good players who weren't getting to travel with the first team, and even if I was sub, I was getting a chance to see these places. Instead of Rochdale, I was going to Birmingham and Cardiff. When Ward arrived at Watford, a minor rebellion was brewing in the dressing room. The players felt their bonus payments should have been improved following promotion, but Taylor wanted them to think about their performances before their pay packets. Graham gave me a heads up and told me it might be a bit rocky on my first day, Ward says. A meeting had been scheduled and the manager was late, probably on purpose. The players were getting restless, eager to address the issue of the bonus payments. One or two were talking loudly about how they were being treated unfairly and that they'd earned a pay rise. Ward sat tight and observed what was going on around him. He couldn't let on that he considered Taylor a friend as well as his boss. I was the new boy, so I couldn't say anything, because my face had to fit with these lads. Steve Harrison, the perennial joker, decided to break the uneasy atmosphere. He grabbed a football and started to do a bit of keepy-uppy. I'll show the gaffer how much I've improved over the summer, he said. He'll have to give us a raise then. With a typical full-back's finesse, the ball squirmed out of control and flew up to the ceiling, smashing one of the long fluorescent strip lights. It shattered into pieces and scattered on the tiled floor. "'That's your raise gone then, Harry,' someone said. Harrison swept up the glass and the player settled down. Taylor arrived and immediately Harrison owned up. "'I've done that, gaffer, sorry. I'll pay for a new light.' That incident took the sting out of the situation a bit, says Ward. The players listened as Taylor explained how it was going to be. They'd start the season as things were, then review the bonus scheme after three months. For Ward, this little incident was proof that Taylor was every bit as in control at Watford as he had been at Lincoln. The message was, prove to me you're good enough for this level, then we'll talk money. Seeing Watford get to grips with the second division was a little like watching a child learn to swim. They had the basic idea and could put together a few decent strokes, but just as it looked like they had the hang of it, the timing would go. The arms and legs would flail and their heads would dip below the surface. It became apparent that these were deeper waters than they were used to, and they quickly realised that every mistake forced them to take a lungful of water that left them gasping. It wasn't that the teams they faced were head and shoulders above the level they were used to, but they were streetwise, and they punished mistakes more ruthlessly. On the face of it, the season didn't start too badly. There was only one defeat in the opening six games, 
and that came on the opening day against Leicester at Filbert Street. But there was only one win too, against West Ham United, on a day when the club found out what it was like to mix it with the big boys. They could play rough, or more to the point, their supporters could. There were some ugly scenes on the terraces that afternoon, as hundreds of West Ham fans found their way into the Vicarage Road end. The first thing Taylor noticed about the second division was how much harder it was to create chances. Defences were well organised. For a team that had developed a reputation as free-scoring attacking entertainers, this was frustrating. Watford had more joy against some of the better sides, the more open teams that wanted to play because the pressing and harrying unsettled them. Strangely, it was the less glamorous sides, the ones that were happy to scrap and battle, that Watford found difficult to break down. Teams like Swansea, Cambridge and Bristol Rovers were stubborn and placed more emphasis on defending. As a result, Watford gradually found they were becoming more cautious in spite of Taylor's insistence they stick to the game plan and attack. Knowing that goals were hard to come by, they also became more fearful of conceding. A tentative streak ran through the team and they seemed less willing to knock people on their backsides. They were, perhaps, showing the second division too much respect. A trip to Chelsea towards the end of September convinced Taylor he had to act. The coach pulled up at Stamford Bridge, outside the imposing main stand that dwarfed everything around it. Menace was in the air. Not least because Chelsea in the late 70s was an intimidating place to visit. Usually, at an away ground, the players would get up as soon as the coach stopped and make their way to the dressing room, but this time no one moved. I realised they were waiting for me, says Taylor. Now, I am not saying that no one in our team had ever played at Chelsea before, but I could tell they were unsure of themselves. Watford lost the game 2-0. It was a meek performance, the sort of game where the home side didn't need to get up to full speed to earn the points. As the players showered and changed, Taylor overheard Roger Jostin talking. Jostin was an untamed beast of a player with a shaggy beard to match. He tackled first and thought about it later, and he rarely let the opposition rest. He was the fire in Watford's belly, driving the team on from midfield. But on this particular day, Watford had rolled over and allowed Chelsea to tickle their tummies. "'Well, they weren't as good as I thought they'd be,' said Jostin. It was a comment that revealed something to Taylor about his team. "'I had great admiration for Roger,' says Taylor. "'He would give you everything, absolutely everything. "'But when I heard him, of all people, say something like that, "'I knew I had to change some of these players.' "'He was saying openly and honestly what he thought about the opposition, "'but it told me a lot about my own team and what I had to do.' "'Taylor needed some players who knew what the upper echelons of the league were all about.' people who could turn up at Stamford Bridge, Roker Park and St Andrews without batting an eyelid. He embarked on a major rebuilding project. Over the next four months, he bought five players, spending almost £600,000, significant money for a newly promoted second division club. In truth, it was the sort of extravagance the supporters had expected in the summer. The new faces were winger Wilf Rostron and fullback Mick Henderson, both from Sunderland. Eric Steele, a goalkeeper from Brighton, a talented young ball-winning, ball-playing midfielder called Martin Patching from Wolves, and finally a striker, Malcolm Poskett, also from Brighton. But as Taylor's spending spree promised to solve one problem, it inadvertently created others. 
Bringing in a handful of new players and trying to integrate them into the team all at once wasn't easy. It proved Taylor's earlier point that sometimes money isn't the simple answer. In those days, Graham Taylor never signed a player without watching him in action himself, preferably numerous times. If he could, he tried to watch a transfer target play both at home and away against a team at the top of the division and against one at the bottom. He wanted to see whether a player who thrived in home games could do it on the road. Was the one who impressed against relegation candidates as effective against the better sides? He'd make phone calls and ask questions. The more the player interested him, the more research he'd do. And by the time he was ready to make a signing, he would know the player better than the player knew himself. If it was at all possible, he'd wait until the player was due to appear in a midweek match at Newcastle United so he could disappear on one of the secret scouting missions he loved to do. He would wrap up training and drive to King's Cross Station in time to catch the two o'clock train to Newcastle. At the other end, he'd walk to the stadium, mingling with the supporters, feeling that same rush of anticipation he used to get when he was one of them on his way to the match. With a chip butty in one hand, he'd buy a ticket for the Gallagate end and stand on the terraces among the fans. As a relatively unknown manager, he was rarely recognised. He'd watch the game and enjoy the atmosphere and the banter. You pick up so much watching a game like that, he says. You'd hear what the supporters were saying, and sometimes they can be so knowledgeable about the game and especially their own players. They will let you know in no uncertain terms what they think of a player because supporters on the terraces don't hold back. They also know the strengths and weaknesses of their players, and so I'd pick up so much standing among them. During the autumn, Taylor made a trip to watch Wilf Rostron, Sunderland's left winger, play in a League Cup tie at Newcastle. Rostron was from the north-east, but had started his career at Arsenal under Bertie Mee, who recommended him to Taylor. The game went to extra time, but Taylor had seen enough and headed back to catch the night train back to London. I'd have a whisky in the bar at the station and then sleep in the little compartment on the train. In the morning... They let you sleep in until seven, and then they'd serve you breakfast on the train. I'd then drive straight to training. I'd be first in, and no one would know where I'd been. I used to love it, because it was like a day out for me. It was a chance to get away from everything, clear my thoughts and mull things over. It was a shame that little things like that weren't possible later on. By the time we reached the first division, I was too well known to stand on the terraces. Rostron was treading water at Sunderland where he'd played for five managers in two years, but he was to become one of Taylor's greatest signings for Watford. It was crazy at Sunderland, says Rostron. The managers were coming and going, so you never knew where you were. It didn't suit me. Rostron was only twenty-three, and he was losing his sense of direction. His versatility and willingness to do whatever the manager asked was, in a funny way, in danger of damaging his career. He played a few games in midfield, have a spell on one wing, then on the other. He even played half a season at centre-forward. Rostron was a regular in the Sunderland team, but he had no clearly defined place in it. Bertie Mee's involvement at Watford was a big draw for Rostron, but the long drive south to meet Graham Taylor and Eddie Plumley almost put him off the move. We got to Watford Gap in Northamptonshire. I thought we must be nearly there, but we kept going and going. My wife Jill and I were thinking... We weren't sure about this. It seemed such a long way from home. 
Plumley gave the Rostrans the hard sell, then drove them round all the prettier towns and villages surrounding Watford. We went on this magical mystery tour, and it all looked all right. We tried to show off the good things about the area, says Plumley. I wasn't too keen on the stadium, especially when we were trying to attract players from the bigger clubs, so we tried to give people a positive impression of the whole area before we had to show them round Vicarage Road. As it turned out, Rostron and his heavily pregnant wife and young daughter spent the first six months living in the Ladbrook Hotel on the A41 because buying a house down south was not easy. When we saw the house prices, I thought they'd put an extra naught on by mistake, he says. It was the middle of a recession and we couldn't get a mortgage. Even though I was earning good enough money, no one was lending. You just couldn't do it. In the end, we only got a loan because the bank manager we spoke to happened to be from Sunderland. Rostron arrived in October 1979, costing Watford £150,000. Living in a hotel made it difficult to settle, and there was the workload in training to get used to. I couldn't believe it. I hardly saw Jill. It wasn't like what I'd experienced in football before. It was much closer to a job than anything I'd done previously, he says. I remember saying to Jill, Flippin' heck, I'd better take my miner's hat. I was used to being done with training by half past one, but we were finishing up in the dark. Living in a hotel wasn't the best, and at the time I daren't even ask Jill what she thought of it. As more players joined, the Rostrans had some company at the hotel. It was like a television sitcom, a load of footballers and their families kicking around in a characterless hotel on a busy main road. There was a good sense of camaraderie, says Rostrum. The other players' wives were very supportive. They'd invite Jill and the others round to their houses so they weren't sitting in a hotel all day. Rostrum was quickly followed by another from the northeast, which also helped him settle. Eric Steele, a goalkeeper who was playing for First Division Brighton and Hove Albion, joined for another £100,000 fee. Graham and Eddie sold division, he says. I didn't realise it then, but he needed the six million dollar man in goal, not me. He was doing a major rebuilding job, and he needed people who'd played at a higher level. A month later, Mick Henderson, a right-back, followed Rostron down from Sunderland, and just before Christmas, Martin Patching joined from Wolves. The twenty-one-year-old had been playing in the Wolves team since he was sixteen, and his signing was a real coup. Worried that Patching might find Vicarage Road a bit of a come-down from Molyneux, Taylor arranged to meet him at Highbury and did the deal there. Finally, in January 1980, centre-forward Malcolm Poskett arrived from Brighton. Taylor needed a striker. Ross Jenkins had been out injured since October. Blissett was finding it hard and the goals had dried up. Before signing Poskett, Taylor had tried to get Trevor Wymark, who'd been with Ipswich Town, or the charismatic Frank Worthington, who'd been capped by England but could afford neither, so he settled on Poskett, who had been a reliable goalscorer in the top two divisions. By the end of his spree, Taylor had added plenty of experience. A goalkeeper, a right-back, a central midfield player, a winger and a striker, almost half a team. Patching was the youngest, Poskett the oldest, at 26. They were all experienced, but in one way or other, they all had something to prove, too. They all had improvements to make and would have to adapt to Taylor's preferred way of playing, but at least they all knew what it took to play regularly in the First Division. But far from being a quick solution to Watford's patchy form, 
Taylor realised it was like pressing the reset button and starting again. Although they were all experienced players who had qualities to add to the team, they also had their own ideas about the game. Taylor had to teach them his way, and that proved to take time. Watford was 17th in the second division, three places and just two points above the relegation zone as the 1980s began. They had just scored 18 goals in 23 matches and their reputation as an exciting, effervescent team had evaporated in half a season. The players Taylor had signed did not have the desired effect immediately. Christmas was gloomy, with a 1-0 home defeat against Luton Town on Boxing Day, kicking off a nine-match run without a win in the league that lasted until a goalless draw at Charlton at the end of February. Only a run to the quarter-finals of the FA Cup lifted the mood. An excellent win at QPR was followed by the epic 4-3 victory over non-league Harlow Town, when Watford were almost on the receiving end of an upset. A 3-0 win over First Division Wolves at Molyneux was achieved with the sort of aggressive, spirited performance Taylor wished his team could reproduce every week in the league. And even though the manager dug out his lucky brown suit for the sixth-round tie against Arsenal at Vicarage Road, it was not enough to prevent Watford slipping to a 2-1 defeat. The cup run distracted from going more than two months without a league win, which plunged the team into the thick of a relegation scrap. The lowest point was a toothless 3-0 home defeat to Orient, and, for the first time, Taylor started to feel the pressure, not because of the grumblings on the terrace, but because he knew he had to go back to the drawing board. I looked at the players I'd signed, and I watched them play, and I realised I'd bought what I call five-a-side players, says Taylor. They were all good players, technically better than some of the ones we already had. But as a team, we were not creating chances or scoring goals. We weren't even managing a goal a game, and that hit me so hard, because it went against everything that I wanted us to do. I had realised some of the players who had done so well for us in the lower divisions were not going to get us much further, and so I had to change the team. But when I got the new players, I realised that although they brought a lot of qualities to the team, I was buying people who did not see the forward pass I wanted them to see. They did not see the benefit of the early delivery into the box. They hadn't been told where the majority of goals were scored from. So I had these players who were experienced in the higher divisions, but who did not know my style of play. I was signing better, more experienced players, but we were creating fewer chances and scoring fewer goals, and I thought, this can't be right, Graham. I knew I had to change something, otherwise it was going to be the end of the dream. I'd spent a good deal of money and changed the number of players, and yes, they were upgrades on what we already had, but it wasn't working, and I knew I had to address it. I remember a conversation with Elton on the phone one day when I told him what I was thinking. I knew I couldn't go out and spend the same again on another five players straight away, so I had to make it work with the ones I'd got. In the long run, it helped me because the next time I was in a position to buy people, I knew much more clearly what I was looking for. Taylor went back to basics. Hours were spent on the training ground working on the fundamentals of his style of play. The idea of getting the ball forward early, firing crosses into the penalty area, and attacking the near and far posts were drummed in to the new players, but it was slow going. Graham changed the system of play a bit at the start of the second division season, says John Ward. He thought that in getting to the second division, he had to do something different, perhaps be a bit more sophisticated, although I know he doesn't like that description. But slowly he realised that he didn't have to change what he believed. He didn't have to become something different because 
trying to be something different was detracting from what we were actually good at. As the season went on, he reached a point where he went back to what he believed in, and he did it wholeheartedly. In the end, it was Malcolm Poskett's goals kept us up. We didn't score a lot of goals as a team, but he got one or two that were absolutely crucial. That season was the lowest total of goals a team of Grahams had ever scored, and that really hurt him because he prided himself on playing exciting football. That Poskett scored only three goals in the league shows what a struggle it was. Relegation was never an all-encompassing threat, but it was an ever-present danger lurking in the shadows, and the threat didn't vanish from sight until the final fortnight of the season. Watford won each of their last two home games against Fulham and Burnley 4-0. That compensated for a 5-0 thrashing at Sunderland in between. The defeat at Sunderland was a heavy one, but the team didn't actually play that badly, and the fact his team showed it was able to score again in those final two home games heartened Taylor. However, there was another reason to be optimistic. The youth policy Taylor had entrusted to Tom Wally was starting to produce fruit, and as the threat of relegation eased in those final weeks, Taylor gave a couple of teenagers their opportunity. Two young players made their first appearance at Roker Park. For central defender Steve Terry, still six weeks shy of his 18th birthday, a 5-0 defeat could have been an experience to scar him for life. We travelled up on the train the day before the game, Terry says. I had to carry the basket of kit on the train, and I didn't know until we got there that I was actually in the team. That was the sort of thing Graham would do. He'd throw you in and see how you coped. Roker Park was packed. Sunderland needed to win to keep themselves on course for promotion, and Watford were up against it early on. They held on until shortly before half-time, but went in for the break 2-0 down. In the second half, Sunderland scored three more, and Terry's head was spinning like a revolving door. "'Oh, dear. He had a nightmare,' says Wilf Rostron. "'He was only a young lad.' And he just went and did his best, but he was up against the best attack in the division. And when your centre-half collapses like that, you're dead. The crowd was so loud, says Terry, particularly when they kept scoring. I was thinking, is this my fault? Will that be it for my pro career? Graham was planning for the future, and he realised one or two of the senior players had gone as far as they were going but after losing 5-0 on your debut, you do wonder if that will be your lot. Fortunately for me, it wasn't. Kenny Jacket, 18, the son of Frank Jacket, who had played for Watford in the 50s, came on for Dennis Booth. For a boy who lived on the Hollywell estate and could see the Vicarage Road floodlights from his back garden, it was a dream come true to make his first team debut, even if the result was far from ideal. On the train journey home, Booth sat down next to Jacket and said, Well, that's it for me, son. It's up to you now. I'm an old man and I will not play again. Booth was not wrong. That was his final appearance for Watford. He passed on the baton. Burnley were well beaten on the final day of the season. Terry got another chance and had to mark Brian Hamilton, a Northern Ireland international which could have led to another torrid afternoon but he stood up to the challenge. Early in the game, he made a mistake and they nearly scored, says Rostron. I remember shouting at him, Hey, you just play. Don't you flippin' go into your shell again. And he did. He played well. And I thought, he'll be all right, him. 
he'll be a player. Moments like that can make or break a career. If he'd gone down again, that might have shown the manager enough to try someone else, but he stood up to it, and he showed he could learn from a difficult experience. Another of Wally's boys, Nigel Callaghan, made his debut against Burnley. Taylor was buzzing after the match, excited that three such promising young players had pushed their way through. He'd intended to chuck them in a bit earlier in the season, but had decided to wait until the team's safety was assured. Now they were guaranteed a second season in the division, he was already thinking ahead. I learned such a lot in that season. In many ways it was my best year in management, says Taylor. Firstly, I learned about the division we were now in, and secondly, about the players I had and how to manage a group and get the best I could out of them. I realised that some of them thought you had to play a certain way in the top two divisions. Ray Train, who I got on with very well, was one who I thought sometimes wanted to make the perfect pass or score the perfect goal in, instead of just going for the opposition's throats. I remember in a match he had a shooting chance, but he didn't take it because he could sense the tackle coming in, and he seemed more interested in trying to get the penalty than shooting, and perhaps missing the target. I may be wrong, and I don't mean that Ray was unprofessional in any way, but it was not what I wanted to see. I wanted to see us try to score at the earliest opportunity, rather than win a free kick or even a penalty. Watford finished that season in 18th position, safe by a comfortable margin in the end, but certainly nothing spectacular. The chairman returned from another long concert tour, not to ask what went wrong, but to offer his manager a new five-year contract. Far from being under pressure, Taylor was given the security to build the next phase, and his head was full of ideas. He wanted the team to forge on with a more direct style of play. He didn't realise it at the time, but there had been a dossier sitting on his desk for months, containing written evidence that would persuade him to commit fully to his true beliefs and embrace the no-holds-barred, all-out attacking style that would propel the Hornets onwards. The dossier had been sent by a mystery admirer earlier in the season, but Taylor had not got round to reading it. But more of that later on. End of chapter four. Next time, meet Sergeant Major Tom, the man who built Watford's youth system and turned boys into men. <laughs> 